Do you love what you hear on the podcast? Please go to Buy a Cup of Coffee. The Radio Horror link is in the show notes or it's on top of the Twitter page. Or you can just go to buymeacupofcoffee.com backslash Radio Horror. And you can help support Goth Girl Horror and the other podcasts here on the Radio Horror Network. Donations go towards cloud service and new equipment. Thank you. Hi, this is Skip Lackey. And I was in the 1985 horror comedy film Once Bitten. And this is Chris and Scott with the Vampire Movie Minute podcast. Enjoy. And welcome back to a new exciting movie here on the Vampire Movie Minute podcast. As me and my co-host Scott are going to cover the 1980s science fiction vampire movie Life Force. I am your host, Dr. Chris. I'm Scott Danielson. And we are going to be watching this movie from the Scream Factory Blu-ray or DVD as Scott and I have split the uh, set up. Uh, which I'm sure people are screaming into their um, screaming at their computers right now about how I could do that because this Blu-ray is completely out of print, by the way, and one of the most sought-after Blu-rays apparently uh, that people wish Scream Factory would, you know, re-release again. Um, I got this movie as part of a uh, box of Blu-rays from Scream Factory for to review back when they used to send me stuff. <laughs> they haven't in several <laughs> years. I don't know why. <laughs> they haven't sent me anything since like 2014. Um, but uh, yeah, this is from 1985. And didn't we just cover a movie from 1985, Scott? I believe we did. Uh, the entire year, actually, uh, pretty much, right? From uh, spring up until uh, about, uh, say, late summer. And then we came back for a special episode about uh, about a week or a week or so ago. That's correct. Yep, we covered Once Bitten, and we had a whole bunch of people on that from that show, uh, the from that movie. I don't know if we will have as many people on from this movie. <laughs> um, what was your first introduction to Life Force, or is it the book is called Space Vampires? Uh, yeah, my introduction to Life Force was I'm trying to think here. Uh, it w- definitely within recent memory because uh, it's it's just not. Uh, it's, I think it's kind of developed a cult following over the past couple of years, at least within the last decade or so. And so I think I saw that it was covered on uh, another podcast, How Did This Get Made? And so I was like, okay, I want to check out and see what this is about. And then I found out it was a canon film, which we can, we'll get into what canon films was later. And uh, yeah, I just, just checked it out. And it is so many different films all smashed together. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. We will definitely get into more about canon films later on, if, in case you want to f- learn more about canon films before we do. Isn't there a great documentary on Netflix? Yes, there is a, a canon films documentary, verifying the name. Elect- yeah, uh, yeah, it's called Electric Boogaloo, perfect, uh, which is it's the wild untold story of canon films. And it's been available on Netflix for a while, and it just tells the story of how the, the studio started, how they ran, and then kind of documenting the films that they were responsible for along the way. And it is it is hilarious and fascinating, if you're uh, especially if you're a movie buff like I am. And like I said earlier, we are going to be covering the 120 hundred and what what is it 120 minute version of the movie? It's like uh, over yeah, two hours. 
It's well, it's almost it's almost exactly that. It's like one sixteen uh, minutes, and it's about sixteen minutes longer than the um, sixteen minutes longer than the U.S. version. So it's technically it was this was the version that was released in the U.K. and abroad, but uh, the U. I guess the United States got sixteen minutes of it cut out for reasons. Right. <laughs> And we will talk a little bit about what those cuts are. Uh, if you want to know what they are, of course, they're also on IMDb as well. Um, Scott, just in case you want to follow along, those are on IMDb's Life Force uh, page, too. Nice. Because I don't have enough time to watch both versions of the movie back to back to back to back to back. Yeah, I, I found I found a couple of uh, a couple of uh, pages that detailed the <laughs> the detailed the. Uh, the difference is that they made a point of saying it's not it's not a bad watch if you just get to look at Matilda May the whole time. So uh, we will definitely get to Matilda May. Um, I don't want to ruin all of our um, fawning over her right in the very beginning, but uh, right in the very beginning of the movie, we have the Gollum. Uh, we have the uh, we have the producers of the movie mm-hmm. who were known for their just cutting corners at every possible cost to make a to make a buck. I mean, even stealing money, which is, yes, this this is considered to be stealing um, money from one movie to make another movie, which they did with uh, Masters of the Universe to make Superman four. Speaking of Christopher Reeve, off air conversation we just had about the passing of David Prowse, who trained Christopher Reeve to be Superman. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Golan and Globus. Uh, so they were they were the guys behind. Uh, can, they were the guys behind Candid Films, and yeah, they were um, especially as portrayed in the documentary, basically notorious for, you know, kind of they were. A lot of Hollywood people viewed them as con men because they would just they would take they would sell a movie that didn't even exist yet, and then use it and then use the money that they were given for that movie to fund a different movie. And or like just come in with a poster when they didn't even have a script, and like all this kind of stuff. So and uh, you know sometimes and they for a stretch in the 80s they hit just enough that they they could they could skate by. So every now and then they put out something that was either successful or good, and they were able to they were able to keep it going. But eventually you know by the time they hit Masters of the Universe the wheels had all come off and they were out of money and that's why that's why some of the, some of the films that they made were just so poor because they didn't have the money to back it, basically. And then we start uh, with the credits as the um, camera moves along the shot of a, um, assuming the moon, maybe, or an asteroid of some kind. It's definitely not Haley's Comet that we're seeing. Yeah, I'm going to presume it's the moon because they they are so close to Earth. <laughs> that is Because otherwise the timelines don't make sense. But yeah, it's either a moon or an asteroid. And then we get our first credit of an actor. We have Steve Railsbeck, who plays Colonel Tom Carlson. And and he is still acting today. He was in a movie last year. But uh, he's also best known for being in Ed Gein and Barb Wire, as well as Femme Fatales. I don't quite remember him in Barb Wire, but I do remember that movie starring Pamela Anderson. But I remember mm-hmm. he was Dwayne Barry in The X-Files, and I'm on an X-Files binge right now. I'm at the end of season six. But yeah, Dwayne Barry was the UFO abductee that uh, replaced uh, his abduction with Scully, so Gillian Anderson could go have a baby. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that. I remember that uh, sequence. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I distinctly remember him whenever I watch this movie because he was Dwayne Barry. Um, so that was a huge part of that mythology of that show. You know, tying into the giant alien conspiracy, uh, which yeah. we are covering right now. Alien conspiracies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
Uh, and then we ha- next up we have Peter Firth, and Peter Firth, of course, is uh, I believe he is the brother of Colin Firth, right? I'm I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking him up. I believe so, but I'm not positive. Hang on, I'm, I'm double checking who. He was in the Hunt for Red October while while Scott looks that up, and the MI5 TV series as well, which if you ever saw, I thought was a pretty decent show. Ran from 2002 to 2011 for 86 episodes, and he was on every episode of that show. Uh, but uh, he's he's pretty much a bit part actor appearing in things here or there that I may or may not have seen. And then the next uh, person up is Frank Finlay. Um, he plays one of the scientists that we meet on Earth. And he was in The Three Musketeers, which was directed um, by Richard Lester, who would go on to direct the Superman 2 movie. Yeah, uh, Frank fin- Finlay is, is one of he's, – he's actually probably <laughs> – outside of uh, somebody we're about to name, he's probably the, most respect, uh, the second most respected actor in this film – um, he's been in a number. He was nominated for Academy Award. He was, a, you know, he was in acclaimed movies from the '60s up until recently. Uh, and for instance, he was in The Pianist with Adrian Brody. So he is, yeah. And he got nominated for an Oscar in in 1966 for playing uh, Iago in Othello. So he is a well-respected guy. And it's also funny that Space Girl, Matilda May, who is pretty much, I guess, the only, the biggest central main character of the entire movie. I mean, we do have, of course, um, you know, Tom and Colin as well, but Space Girl is is the villain, and, and I mean, she's the focus that a lot of people remember about this movie, primarily for her nudity, but also because, I mean, she's the villain. Um, and then, of course, she gets billed before another distinguished actor, somebody we know from famous starship in space <laughs> that would be sir patrick stewart who needs no introduction if you've seen the x-men movies or if you're currently watching what's on cbs all access right now scott uh yeah they just uh oh i'm forgetting the name it's uh is it picard, uh, picard. oh my goodness picard that's right yeah, yeah. so yeah, no, yeah, yeah they so gave so that's kind the... of a continuation of his story yeah a lot of people mixed reactions about the film um, about the TV series. Um, I'm not going to give away the the reasons why, but some people love it, some people hate it. My co-host over at the Hammer Movie Minute podcast called him cuckold. Wow. Strong words there. Yeah, and she absolutely hates the portrayal of Seven of Nine on the show, which someone said that's a spoiler. I was like, oh, no, she's in the trailer for that. That's not a spoiler. Seven of Nine showed up in the trailer. And yeah, she's all I over mean, the marketing a, too. A, Star Star Trek fans are notoriously mercurial, so it's uh it's hard to please them. Yeah, but she definitely has like a very human side to her compared to when we saw her on uh, Voyager, which was the last time we saw Jerry Ryan play Seven O Nine. Yeah. Next up in the credits, we have um uh I really scribbled down the credits here, so we're gonna go through them as we see them on IMDb. We have Michael. Gothard, who was in For Your Eyes Only. He played Loke. Uh, he was in Jack the Ripper, and he was also in Three Musketeers. And he was recently, um, as of 1992, the last film he did before he passed away. And by the way, this is the, actually the anniversary of his death. December 2nd, 1992, he passed away. And he was in a made-for-TV production of Frankenstein. Uh, Nicholas Ball, he was in The Mutant Chronicles and Red Dwarf, which we'll probably see a lot of actors show up in Red Dwarf as a British production, and this is a British movie, it seems, for the most part. Yeah, they definitely they definitely filmed in Britain, so I'm guessing that's where they, they did most of their casting. Right. And of course, the DP for this movie would uh, is the DP for five of the Bond films, as well as uh, Return of the Jedi. 
Yeah, that's that was one of the the stunners in terms of um, we're talking about we're talking about um, Alan Hume. Yes, who is we're talking about Alan Hume, who is a very respected cinematographer. Like the the credits, it's it's interesting in terms of the the credits avail uh, that he has. Um, as we mentioned, Bond films, Return of the Jedi, and then also another canon film, probably arguably that came out the same year. So busy guy. Like, actually just looking at his 1985 is insane, because director of photography for A View to a Kill, so had to deal with Christopher Walken, Grace Jones, and Roger Moore, then did this, Life Force, then did Runaway Train, uh, the with uh, now openly uh, kind of a cuckoo bird, <laughs> John Foyt, um, and Eric Roberts, and then also John and Yoko, A Love Story, TV movie in 1985, so three movies and a TV movie, all in the same year. And also the DP for the Supergirl movie in 1984. Oh, no. Is that why that movie... Um, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, no to him, unfortunately. But that's why that movie... A little bit more positive uh, attitude now. That's why that movie looks so good. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah. And, and, yeah, it just seems to... It's, it's, filmography is pretty scatological, it seems. Like, no, no distinctive genre that he sticks with for too long. Like, he is the DP for A Fish Called Wanda, which was a great comedy... But yeah, he's, and then most recently was did a, a TV movie uh, for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and then uh, passed away in 2010. And he did two episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and he's he did the, he was a director of photography in a movie that me and my co-host uh, Roe are going to cover on Boobs, Blood, and Badasses, the Hammer Horror Podcast, Kiss of the Vampire. We're actually going to be recording that this weekend. Can't get away from vampires, it seems, but... If you watch that movie and we watch Return of the Jedi, you can definitely see it. They even talk about, during the commentary of Kiss of the Vampire on the DVD, obviously after Alan has passed away, uh, that uh, they, they uh, the one of the actors from Kiss of the Vampire is enamored by the scene um, in the Endor Forest during the speeder bike chase with Luke and Leia and the, um, the scout troopers. Oh, okay, yeah. That is an amazing uh, cinematography uh, genius scene. That 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 scene alone makes that movie so great because people are, 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 are thrilled by how well he was able to shoot that. Cause it's such a fast paced scene. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it's a great one. Of course the book, it's based on a book by Colin Wilson, um, who, which is what Goldham hold held up to Toby Hooper and said, I want you to direct this movie. I have one stipulation though. The space girl has to be naked because in the book, she actually wears like a dress of some kind, but it's still very sexy and revealing breasts and revealed and all. But in the movie, he wanted her to be completely nude. So they hired 19 year old uh, Matilda May who didn't speak any English. Yeah, yep. She was a French model, and they just hired her. Well, clear. I mean, this is this is actually a kind of a a, a thing within canon films is that basically it's like, oh, we're going to give you blood, we're going to give you violence, we're going to give you boobs, we're we're going to give you all the all the stuff the kids want. That was that was kind of their mantra. The hiring of Matilda May for this movie reminds me very much of the hiring of another alien that would basically, you know, suck and fuck her way through a, uh, you know, a, a cast of characters, uh, Natasha Hentridge in Species. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Now they, it's interesting. A lot of the times they choose uh, people, uh, they choose models for these roles, and they're just like they they won't speak very much, and they'll just be sexy because that's what they're paid to do, and it'll work. And for the most part, it seems to work out. Uh, what's funny is that Natasha Hendridge was also 19 years old when she got cast as uh, Syl. Wow, that that is actually surprising to learn because I don't know she's she's 
came came across as older. Matilda May like looks young in this movie. So she had just turned eighteen. Of course. Uh, I was watching a documentary about species, and they talk about Natasha Hedridge in the movie. She was Canadian, so she spoke English, but she had no problem being nude. She was just like, well, okay, that's fine. And the, 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 biggest, the biggest concern was finding somebody who could look good and act, and they kept finding one or the other. And they were like, we have actresses, but we don't like the way their body looks naked, you know, and so on and so forth. And, yeah. and that's not to be derogatory. It's just, I mean, if you're looking to create a, an alien creature that's smoking hot, that's going to use her body to seduce men to mate with them so she can get pregnant, you're, you're not, you're, you're going to cast someone that looks like Natasha Hendricks. Well, it's, it's kind of the stand, it's kind of the standards of the era, uh, and so that's kind of. Like I, I, I think you'd probably see modifications on it in a more modern setting. Maybe not, but yeah, I, that's, that's that was pretty much the thinking at the time. It would shock me, shock the shit out of me, Scott, if they ever try to make a movie like uh, Life Force or Species today in 2020. Of course, you can't make a movie in 2020, but you get what I'm saying. I mean, I think they've. Kind of, I think Westworld is the closest we've gotten recently. Oh my God, there is a ton of nudity and sex in Westworld. I mean, there is. Yeah, there exactly. Is nudity, so, so, there is rape, there is just. Yeah, but but high high concept sci-fi. Like I feel like, it, but yeah, R-rated sci-fi. Like you need to either have a name or just. It, it's not the easiest, especially something as big budget as this. It's not very easy to get made nowadays. The movie, after we get through the credits, which we will get back to more some of the people in the credits, we want to keep this uh, podcast moving, so we will get back to some of them, including the uh, author that the book is based on as well. Uh, maybe we'll do a deep dive about that. Um, I'm not going to age you, Scott, but I was alive last time Haley's Comet was passing through the area. Oh, I, don't, I forget. I don't, when was that? 1980s. Um, Haley's Comet will pass through the area again, by the way, in, in 2061, which I will be uh, 81 years old at that point. And the last time Haley's Comet came through was in 1986. So this movie is about a year into the future. Okay, yeah. So it yeah it just it just beat me because I'm an 87 baby. Okay. Um. So you should be alive just in time for the the next scene and be like, oh, let me tell you about the podcast I did. We talked about this naked woman in space. And your grandkids look at you being like, okay, grandpa, <laughs> grandma, grandpa's, grandpa's on the talking again. About- <laughs> Grandpa's talking about boobs again. There you go. Grandpa's talking about some naked space vampire he talked about on something called a podcast. What's your kids just like go that. over to the computer and then just jack the thing into their brain? <laughs> All right. We used to have to download this thing called the internet. It's digital above us in the clouds. And again, they're just sitting there, just hardwired into the computer. <laughs> 76 years is how long it takes for Haley's Comet to come back around. Uh, I guess it has a green trail. I don't know a lot about comets. I'll let you know that Scott and I are not astronauts, and we're not from uh, we're not scientists either, unless Scott's got some uh, scientific background that I'm unaware of. Uh, yeah, it's it's mostly it has basically whatever the whatever the color is. I don't know it off the top of my head. Whatever the color that looks like it's coming off of it, it it always has to do with the chemicals that are in the comet. And then how that hits the light, and then and how it breaks off and stuff like that. So that's that's why. So I think it's just because of how much. I think maybe it's ammonia. I'm, I'm look. I actually looked up Haley's Haley's comet as we were talking, just because I figured it would come up. But so Haley Haley's comet is it's basically their giant comets are basically giant ice balls, and then the closer they get to the sun, they kind of uh, they burn off. Uh, bits of it burn off, and that gas then hits different wavelengths uh 
just called fluorescence. And so, yeah, that's how you get different, different colors. But in the film, it is distinctly neon green, <laughs> which I doubt it would look like ever. Now, on the commentary, the director of the film, Toby Hooper, who we best know, of course, from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the movie Poltergeist, um, talks to us, and one of the, probably the last time we would ever hear him talk, unless it was an interview uh, done before his passing, uh, about there was a British space program. Um, and as of the time of the recording of the commentary, he does not believe the Britain, British government has a space program anymore. Yeah, I I was actually surprised that there was such an emphasis on Britain <laughs> in this because uh, they're I don't know if they one if they have a space program want or but also how historic it is I think they've mostly been in a support role they have um, been I'm sorry yeah you're you're correct they have been um, because don't yeah. forget we are also this isn't just a British space program in space dealing with this this is a British American collaboration it seems. Yeah, so yeah, it's a British American collaboration, but it's so funny that they just emphasize the British stuff because I mean it's called the 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 first shuttle we see is the HMS uh, Churchill, you know, and then most of the crew has British accents, and so it's and then so there's like one typical American, and that's a that's a that's that's the group it seems. The first British astronaut in space was uh, in 1978, and the second was in 1991, and the and the most recent was in 2008. Major Pete uh, Tim Peake. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that was. Uh, I actually I actually remember uh, the comedian Eddie Izzard has had like jokes about, um, you know, kind of how Britain, especially because they had. Um, kind of this post-war, like, rationing was still a thing for a while. And so there was a, so this idea of, you know, like, going to the stars or becoming an astronaut, that wasn't really, like, a dream anybody would believe in or support. <laughs> so so it is it is interesting to see, like, an entire crew of British astronauts. It is funny that you mentioned that musician, because what distinguished musician has a son in this movie? Oh, I... I don't know off the top of my head. Mick Jagger's son, Chris Jagger, plays one of the two male vampires. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and the other male vampire is played by Bill Malin, and he has only uh, a few credits to his name, one of which is nine episodes of Doctor Who in the 1987-88 season. Yeah, it looks like playing robots, it seems. Cybermen. Yeah. We don't uh before we uh end these 5 minutes we also want to man- make sure we mention that the music for this movie which is fantastic and I do have it on vinyl. I absolutely had to buy it on vinyl is by Henry Mancini who has quite the distinguished career. He's best known of course for the theme to the Pink Panther. Yeah, Henry Mancini is is one of the most respected one of the most respected uh, score, you know, film score people you've ever come across. Uh, he did Breakfast at Tiffany's, as you mentioned, The Pink Panther, and also, uh, you know, so many things. I mean, his career goes far beyond that, mm-hmm. including um, two distinguished television shows that people still love to this very day, and we're seeing remakes of Charlie's Angels. Scott, yeah, that's. Oh, yeah, no, oh, I lost uh, you there. Sorry. I, don't, I, I don't know the other one off the top of my head. Uh, all my children. Uh, all, um, all my children. There you go. Yeah. So he, yeah, definitely a lot of uh, it's like going through his IMDb is just it's it's ridiculous oh. in terms of how much he was able to put out. I said all my children. It's actually all his children. I don't know what that is. So I thought it was. I thought I said all my children. The you know the the long running soap opera. I, I can't say I know what that is. <laughs> no, I don't know what that is either. But all my children is a pretty well known soap opera. But um, uh, Mommy Dearest is another one uh, that uh, is pretty well known, and uh, the Great Mouse Detective as well. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. A running theme that will. I mean, we're 
were kind of addressing it already with this movie, is that the talent involved is far above the material. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now we get into the um, the ship itself as the astronauts are exploring it, and it it, it looks very H.R. Giger-esque, like the, the the walls and everything definitely look like something out of Giger. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's yeah. There's a lot of uh, yeah. There's a, it's very Giger-esque. It's very very alien-esque. Um, which makes a little bit of sense because one of the writers, Dan O'Bannon, wrote Alien. <laughs> yes, Dan O'Bannon. Uh, this was uh, his idea uh, based on that book. Um, Dan O'Bannon has quite the career in Hollywood, and we will go into it in length coming up soon. His wife, I have, his widow, excuse me, I have met uh, a few times, actually. Um, and then, of course, the door opens up, and it looks like a coffin. The shape of the door to the, to the alien spaceship is a coffin. And this, this spaceship is, ha- is hanging on to the tail end of Haley's Comet, and that's why they send the astronauts out to go investigate it. And they, uh, the last line said before the five minutes end is execute maneuver, and our five minutes ends for, this, uh, for the beginning of the Life Force uh, podcast. Yeah, this yeah, they basically they find the the thing that's at the t- at the tip of the comet. It seems to be some sort of unexpected element and then they're going to investigate in their uh gridded <laughs> space shuttle. And that's all the time we have here on the Vampire Movie Minute podcast covering the 1985 movie Life Force, which is also funny. It is the 35th anniversary of Life Force. There you go. And you can find us on the Vampire Movie Minute on Twitter and you can find us on our individual Twitters at ChrisDSAV. And I'm at Scott C. Danielson. And you can also send us an email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com. We're going to be setting up something cool for the podcast. You can buy us a cup of coffee. We're not going to do Patreon. Patreon is kind of a big failure for the Radio Horror Network. So we're going to try to buy a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be back next week with another five minutes to the Vampire Movie Minute podcast covering Life Force. Catch you next time. Oregon Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. Serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in the Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 Three zero nine three four one six, or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland, and on their website as well, www.dorganramen.com.